Welcome to the Integral Stage Sexuality Series. I'm Layman Pascal, and before I host my high-priced week-long workshop on integrative sexuality at a seaside Caribbean resort, I need to make sure I've been fully exposed to the multidimensional richness and profundity of this topic. A topic that most people find deeply physically compelling, emotionally significant, and for some people intellectually fascinating and brimming with spiritual and developmental potential. Here to share the ins and out of their understanding is... Hey folks, who has no thumbs and hosts the sexuality series on the integral stage? It's this guy, Layman Pascal, and you probably know I love Jeff Goldblum. If you've seen the movie The Fly, you'll know that Jeff Goldblum once invented a transporter device and he tested it on himself. It took him apart down to the quantum level and he zipped across to the other teleportation chamber. Unfortunately, as you may also know, there was a little bit of squished lie in there too. And when he rematerializes, there's now a foreign element spliced right into him. What he wasn't became part of what he is. So now when a naked steaming Goldblum stumbles out of the star chamber, he's evolving as part man and part fly. But what if it hadn't been a fly? What if instead of an insect, it had been a raven? That's what I must presume happened to my guest today, notorious bird woman hybrid Raven Connolly. And she's here to remind us why no one wants to listen to a smart, attractive, leading edge young woman talk about sex on the Internet. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Just turn it off right now. Go outside. First question, Nazi erotica. Thumbs up or thumbs down? Hmm. I wonder where you got that. Okay. Well, you know what? I feel like in a way, um, have you seen the man in the, in the high castle, that, that series? That was... I saw the first couple episodes. Yeah. I feel like anything with Nazis in it is a form of erotica. There's just this, um, at this like sexiness that's portrayed in film, but I think that, you know, at least in the kind of American imagination, there's this association uh, between Nazis and and this like powerful kind of sexy fascism. So I don't know that you can really take the erotica out of the Nazism in terms of the imaginal. You know, I think in terms of the history, you start to see the gruesome nature of it and it starts to emerge as um, something much more brutal and dark. But that's part of the erotic nature of the whole thing. It kind of gives it the uh, the juice that, that people are so attracted to. So. I'm... Curious about how people handle that in a way that's most productive. I know there was a Zizek did this series. Maybe you saw the Pervert's Guide to Cinema, and there's a little section where he details the the band Rammstein is performing with a little bit of Nazi paraphernalia, and his take is that it's not the use of the erotic insignias that's problematic it's the horizon of meaning that we assume they're associated with and if you use them apart from that horizon of meaning you're actually liberating from that would you agree with that yeah i think that there is something there's something to that i think that especially it seems like culturally today um there's such a uh, intense taboo around certain kinds of symbols that they cannot even be played with um, even in an ironic sense, without there being this collapse of the meaning to, to its most broad 
kind of uh, associations. Like, you know, you, you mentioned something online and suddenly you're called a Nazi, you know, like there's just this, um, this lack of playfulness. And I think symbols do need to be removed from some of their context in order to enter into the imaginal. And you do play that people have these like deep associations with those things because they're have a magic to them that grabs you you know if you see somebody you know wearing wearing some sort of nazi paraphernalia uh, at a party or something it's like whoa not that i've seen that but like i could imagine it being stressful and i mean i, I i've heard stories of in, in the punk old days you know and it when people would actually do these kinds of things. Like, and and I imagine that that was a very kind of liberating environment to be in, in terms of stealing uh, back kind of symbols and taking their power, but also learning in community uh, through some sort of exposure that the symbol and the meaning of the symbol is, is not kind of totally connected to the story that we have about where it comes from or what it means. From the point of view of the onlooker to someone who it seems like we have to leave open the possibility that they may be liberating themselves or they may be falling under the sway of the charge that's been placed in those symbols from the point of view of the person doing it what do you think makes that difference mm. well this is a tricky tricky question <laughs> for john o'brudal who is a renaissance magician uh he he talks a lot about how the magician has to be careful to not come under his own spell, right? And so I think that this has been a question for magicians, uh, you know, since since the beginning of how do you know that you're not being kind of cast into your own into your own meaning making world that makes you delusional and loses your power, right? So, I mean, I think that it's it is a matter of being willing to be wrong, you know, and being willing to admit that you're the fool. Pride, I think, comes in as the, the thing that needs to be broken with a lot of this. If you think that you can be the one who masters the symbol without the symbol mastering you, you're much more likely to fall into a position where you're not able to see that you've lost yourself in something. And often it's reality in, in the most aggressive forms that has to come down upon you in order to wake you up from your pride and kind of force some sort of humility into the context. And so I think some people, either the way that they arrange their lives or the kind of path that they're walking, it doesn't matter <laughs> like either what happens to them or they're insulated um, from the real kind of reflecting to them that they've become mastered by their own, by their own power, by their own symbols. I think actually in terms of power literacy, it's important to be surrounded by other powerful wizards <laughs> um, who can call you on your bullshit so that you're within this context where your blind spots are being examined. And I mean, that, that I think is one of the better ways. So there's also maybe a, you need to have some opening in your sense of self where you are aware that you can be fooled and that you are not in it by yourself. Because if you are, then you're much more likely to lose touch with with your own power and with how that power that you have is affecting you collaboration and humility good tips for demon summoners at home uh i want to underline the phrase power literacy 
I don't know that we need to talk about it right now. I just want anybody listening to be aware that that's a thing that should be on their minds. If, if you could correct one thing in the extended liminal web communities about sexuality or gender, what would your hunch about that be? What would be the most useful tweak based on what you see going on in and between people? Wow. That's an interesting question. I think a little bit more bravery. I think that would be helpful. A little bit more willingness to get into conflict and to hold that conflict with openness. I think when it comes to questions of gender and sexuality um, and personality and collaboration and representation and all this, there's so many differing opinions about what's right. Um, and they tend to be highly emotional, highly ideological. And being able to fight it out, I think, would bring the tension to the surface, right? There's a lot of, like, deference to the most aggressive person in the room. Or, you know, and there's fear around saying things that could potentially get you... Uh, you know, exiled, or just cause conflict in your life. I mean, it's 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 a it's it's a kind of conversation or like a sigil. You know, it's like a it's an incantation. It's a it's a summoning, right? It's a summoning of attention. It's a summoning of opinion and emotion um, into your sphere. And so, I think there's a kind of conflict avoidance that is probably just kicking the can down the road um, in terms of actually discovering what's what could emerge? And incidentally, I think that there's maybe a general kind of attitude in these spaces of, of conflict avoidance or like keeping the conflict kind of behind the scenes, because I'm sure there is conflict. I, I can't imagine that there isn't conflict between people in this in this web. Um, but it's not something that's presented as part of the problem that's being worked on between people. And I think that that is acting in a kind of, hmm, you know, it's like there's a stage and it's like, oh, we can all get along. But in the in the background, like people are fighting about, you know, who's getting on stage and, you know, where all the props are and, you know, all of the things that are going on to kind of create the illusion of the possibility of harmony. In the meantime, conflict, I think, is, is the juice, right? It's like coming perceptible to others, um, coming into a state of negotiation where you're working with people who are um, sovereign so that you can trust how they show up, but not everybody is, and, and I, I wouldn't claim to be, right? So then what kind of position are you in when there's asymmetries everywhere? There's asymmetries everywhere in the way that the sexual world emerges between people. And that, um, that creates the necessity for negotiating conflict. <laughs> so I, I think that that would maybe be my my suggestion, a kind of bravery to enter into the world of conflict. So I did a session that was on female rivalry, um, where it was very meta, you know, we talked about the feelings of like, you know, wanting to be the smartest woman or like the most attractive woman or like whatever on, on the on in the call. Um, and I think that kind of session or that those kinds of things, experiments could potentially um, draw out that underlying conflict that that stews beneath the surface and allow for people to see that it's not the end of the world 
to to enter into or to is, is there a danger in that is there something uh like i think a lot of people would hear that and think yeah that sounds about right but is there anything we might lose by bringing the backstage on stage right does it put anything that's important to jeopardy to do that i mean i think so yeah that's that's the whole thing <laughs> that's the very <laughs> that's, tension that's the of the whole thing, right like it's and that's why people are cautious right and why i think like for gender stuff for sex stuff like a lot of it happens behind closed doors and I, in a way i respect that like I, I truly do respect that i also respect that a lot of people who have families or are like living in a world where um they're they're taking care of children there's a little bit more reservation to how you enter into these public spaces and i completely understand and respect that and i, I you know I've, I've wrestled with that myself of like okay i am exposing myself i'm exposing my my nature my being my inner world into this public arena and where, what are my boundaries? What are the things that I wanna invite from doing that? And what are the things that I would rather kind of head lightly on? And this is where I think there's a kind of question of, of, of personality um, where like for someone like me, it's much easier to just be like, here I am. <laughs> I'm just gonna say what I want um, rather than being like in my head, like, am I gonna do this? Am I gonna do that? Am I gonna say that? You know. I just kind of show up and say what I feel, and it's it's much easier for me to do that. And when I'm in a time in my life where I feel like something is private happening that I don't want to share, I just don't show up online. I, I just remove myself. And when I'm feeling like I can, everything about what's going on, I feel comfortable talking about, or, or at least in the abstract, I'm ready to enter into a public discussion. And not everybody is like that. Um, so I think that that's where, it is important that there are certain a certain diversity of personalities in our communities so that people can see things demonstrated and not yet have to be the person who's exposing themselves to the world because not everybody is is, is suited for that position and it, it it does require some amount of like shamelessness i think um or at least foolishness <laughs> to to just share oneself without um much consideration of possible implications of that but i think that there is a danger point so i and th then that's where we can begin to draw from our, our reservoir of understanding about um about setting magic containers right like we can we can use our tools in order to hold things um and and bring intention to to these kinds of conversations but you know it's also um it's also possible to get into these things in an implicit way, which is the other thing about all of this stuff, of, about Eros and about um, conflict. There's, there's the question of like, oh, these two people are in conflict, let's talk about it. But then there's also the investigation of it as an abstraction. And that can kind of allow for a discussion of principles involved without drawing it down to this person and that person and, and the conflict that arises from that. So there's other ways of engaging with the material um, that I think makes it a little bit safer for the, for the community to hold. Um, but then sometimes I think a little eruption is, is the kind of energy that is needed and we shouldn't be afraid of forcing energy from the diverse places that it comes from, you know, in, in, in human 
and human being. So yes, it's, it's a tricky it's a tricky place <laughs> to be in. One of the things that the, uh, the dark renaissance contingent is calling some of the other aspects of the liminal web community toward is uh, an emphasis on the, the risks and self-explorations involved in something like sexual maturity. And sexual maturity is a very slippery concept to divine because we're not exactly sure who's in a position to say what it is. We're not exactly sure whether or not the goal of maturation is itself an ideal that is powered by and conceals a certain immaturity. Uh, it might be safer to look at the question in a personal way. When you look back at your life so far, what evidence do you see that you might have matured in your view towards sexuality? Yeah. Um... I was just thinking about this this morning, um, particularly the point that you made about personal stories, right? Um, I think probably the best way to actually get in touch with where you are in terms of your own life path and your relationship to your, your particular context when it comes to love and relationships and intimacy and attachment is to see what people say as, as stories and not to see it as advice it's just too particular it's too contextual where we are and where we're going and what sexual maturity looks like for one person is not the way that it looks like for another person um if there is something human beings are broadly diverse in how they cluster the, the like the possible possible combinations of traits that we that we have and to, to think that there's some sort of general idea of sexual mature, maturity that doesn't when it comes into the embodied realm become highly particular um, to individuals i think is a mistake and i think that's the challenge of wading into this conceptual space because you say something like sexual maturity it's like oh my god it's like such an abstraction you're like okay well that could look like polyamory for one person and like long-standing deep monogamy for another and even that even that is like still at the level of like categorical thinking that doesn't even begin to get into the nuances of those particular stories, those particular journeys. I think for me, I, I, I definitely, I definitely see uh, an evolution in, in maturity. My, my path in particular has been one of uh, quite a bit of, of chaos and disorder in the realm of, of, of relationships and, and intimacy. And as I've gotten older, I've only become more astute and capable of keeping things um, untangled. And that's required, a, you know, a lot of, of bravery, I think, fundamentally, because at the bottom of all of this is, is the context of our lives, of our nervous systems, of, of how we were involved with our attachment figures. And these, I mean, sometimes just very particular events, things that happened, you know, decades ago that, that shape a trajectory that you may have even forgotten. So it's, it's a deeply contextual thing to get involved with another person in an intimate way, regardless of who they are. You know, it's, it's you're inviting the whole person into the world with you. 
and I think I've been particularly foolish about about rushing intimacy, which I think is a common mistake that is made by young people. And getting into a place where you understand the power of the realm that you're in. I think that's part of what has become more salient to me is understanding like, oh, okay, I'm entering into a space with someone and this space brings in parts of this person that otherwise um, they hold to themselves, they keep to themselves. And if I'm going to enter into that space, then there needs to be a, an invitation. Um, there needs to be a sense of reverence for entering into that, the cave of someone else's experience and someone else's context. There's just a degree um, of depth that you enter into that I think changes the like kind of social or psychic environment that you're in. You, the physics of the environment that you enter into shifts. And that's just like, I mean, I've learned that, you know, through participation in the world, through participation in other people's psyches, um, and then reflecting on my own psyche. And, and I have a particular story, like other people don't have this problem. Other people didn't have the same kinds of um, attractions and qualities that I do. And so I've learned a particular kind, kind of maturity, right? That another person might need to actually open up themselves. Whereas I'm needing to like learn how to enter in with some kind of uh, ritualistic, you know, reverence. So it, it's once again, it's like highly contextual um, and relative to where you've been in other parts of your life. And I think the stories of other people are, first of all, we love them. <laughs> we love hearing the stories of other people's sexual and romantic um, trajectories. And I think that they can help you, but not in a direct way, only as stories, only as like imaginal realms. Like it's almost as if you have to take it as something that's not real to you. And then it can become helpful. Just like reading a, you know, Lord of the Rings can be helpful for understanding the context of, of human existence. It's, it's the same kind of thing. And I would say maybe in general, this is how decision-making works much more than we'd like to, like to admit that it's, it's more of a matter of, accepting that you're entering into an imaginal and you ought to look at it like it's a story rather than some sort of instruction, um, direct instruction that you have to take literally or advice that you must follow or a convention that everybody else just does without examination. It's an interesting topic to me because we've got some girls in the house who are just about to start having extra domestic intimacy entanglements, yeah. right? So I'm curious in your case, and we can't generalize, but if you look at two story possibilities in your own case, one story where you could go back to yourself and give yourself your current understanding and she could implement that. And the other one where failing to implement your current understanding was what led to the entanglements that generated your current understanding, which of those stories would you choose? Um, I mean, I would just do it again. <laughs> like, I, I don't think like I've, I've led such a passionate life so far. Um, I've had deep, deep loves. Um, I've gotten in over my head multiple times. I've had like mystical experiences. I, I've, I've 
I've been, I've been held too. I haven't been eviscerated. Like I haven't been drawn into some, something that I felt like was actually perverse or demonic. And I think a lot of that came from listening to my own intuition and, and sitting with what was highly relational, highly contextual. Like I've, you know, I've, I've steered clear of the conventions around dating and I've like really lived from some, some gut um, feelings about like, Oh, this person, um, Oh, this person, you know, and, and lived with that. And yes, I, I've, you know, maybe gone too far or like I've gotten over my head like many times, but listening to your intuition and having it be an embodied experience. Like I've never, um, dating apps and I've never I've always met people like in life like those are the relationships that have been the most sticky and significant to me and so surfing a navigational environment where like you're actually making contact with these like hidden yet perceptible aspects of another person and then letting your intuition kind of take you over in terms of how intimate you want to get with them and then working from that position. And, and as long as you have a support network, you know, I think that I was lucky enough to have one where if I did get in over my head, it wasn't the end of the world. It was never going to be the end of the world. So you can, and it's a beautiful space, I think, to experiment in, to make mistakes in. Because if you have a good kind of instinct for worthiness, for someone who's going to treat you with a sense of worth and that you're able to actually give that to someone else, even if there are things that come up that um, distort your capacity to actually show up in a, in an integrous way at times it's, it's, it's held, it's held by actual love and commitment and to make mistakes in that context, I think is a beautiful way to live. And I've learned so much and I have such deep relationships because I've actually entered into this world of risk where you do put the relationship at risk. You don't know whether or not you're going to survive the situation. You're totally, you know, risking what it feels like your life when you get into these things. And I think that we, we seek that, like, at least I have, I've, I, I have been seeking risky things and things that tested me and things that um, brought reality back into me through another imperceptible, like intelligent, creative, and whole person, someone who was going to respond and force me to contend with who they were. And when we sidestep this kind, kind of thing, when we avoid it, or we only stay in these relationships that keep, keep us at a distance, you're not really contending with other people in a way that shakes you it's always like on your terms right and so I think that part of my life has been entering into dynamics where things weren't all on my terms and having to negotiate that while being deeply attached to somebody and having to figure out how to give them what what would what would keep them there and keep them happy and then the vice versa you know <laughs> it's an environment of continuous negotiation and, and, and checking in. And I, you know, I've done it very kind of haphazardly, but now I'm like, oh, I can do this consciously. I can be discerning. I can make choices. I can, I can 
ask the other person about what's going on in that kind of um, intersection uh, in their experience. And I can, I can seek the truth in them, the truth that they're willing to give me or to show me. And so the whole thing kind of becomes more clarified and nuanced, it's both. So I would say that it's, it's one of the most beautiful places to take a leap that I've known and to be wrong and to be foolish because often you end up with either a great story or a life, lifelong friends, lifelong bonds, uh, even if things don't work out the way that you, they never do. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't change it. I mean, I think that I, if I could give myself something, I'd give myself a little, like a, a, just a higher dose of bravery, I think, of bravery for myself, being able to stand in my own center with a little bit more um, willingness to risk it all. I think that if you're in a position where you know that you have something to give and you know that it's valuable and you've been treated well uh, by your parents or by other people in your life, you're much more likely to, to stand in your own center if someone's treating you poorly and say like, look, I love you, but I need you to stop treating me this way. And these are my conditions. And if you, if you don't, I'm going to have to remove myself. And I think that I didn't really have as, as much strength in that. I had some, but I didn't have as much as I think that um, would have helped me navigate some of the more like edgy kind of, you know, holes that I got into. But that's just a quality of, of character that then I've, I've learned. I've learned it's just taken me a little bit longer. There's kind of a call going on. I mentioned it earlier, the, this call toward sexual maturity and risk, but it's not just those things. Um, darkness, lack, the anomalous, the unconscious, the sexual, the predatory, a new appreciation of conflict. Are these, you know, perennial aspects that have to be counterbalanced or make sure that we're not excluding them? Or is there something about this moment in our community and in the world where it's especially important to stand for, call out and amplify those qualities? I mean, I do think it's perennial. I don't think that we can escape this. It doesn't make any sense structurally. Um, just the level of, like if you really face the human being, I don't think that you could ever like logically get rid of conflict. It doesn't make any sense. <laughs> makes no sense. Uh, there's an illegibility. There's an illegibility to who we are. We're not even legible to ourselves, right? And especially if we're living in a time where convention is no longer serving us, where things are not as they seem, you have to begin to investigate your, your deeper capacities to navigate that, that won't necessarily reveal themselves for what they are until you can discern your own illegibility, your own imperceptibility, which is a process of making so many mistakes um, and contending with your own, your, your limitations of how you view yourself. And what's better than to be in relationship to see the limitations of how you view yourself? I mean, I've, I've been in relationships with people where like, they saw something in me I literally could not see. It was outside of my view of the identity that I had constructed and that I was operating within. And 
making contact with people who see, like, lit like literally can see something that you can't see. I mean, it, there's a little bristle to it, you know, because you're like, oh my God, my ego, it's like, it's being contended with. It's going to maybe lose itself. It's going to maybe die because of contact with this person um, just by their presence. Not even necessarily something that they're saying because this stuff is happening on an embodied level um, because you're being seen. You're being witnessed by someone, you know, who has a hole in their head, like in the sense of there's an awareness that they're emanating from and they don't even know it, right? But the more in touch they are with it, the more that they can actually hold what they're seeing and let go of who they think they are. And I just don't imagine a world where there isn't some blunders, you know, and, and some difficulty and challenges in, in figuring out how to hold yourself in that context. It doesn't make any sense, especially because so much of what burdens us in terms of treating other people well is histories of trauma. Are we just going to wake up one day and everyone's free of their trauma? I mean, I guess that's the psychedelic movement's kind of like weird, you know, utopian promise. But I think that part of our lives is working these things out. And psychedelics might be a part of that. But it's, um, so are our relationships. I mean, almost, it's, that's, that's the whole thing. <laughs> um, so, yes, I think it's perennial. And I also think it's important dialectically especially for these groups, you know, there's a tendency, I think, towards, you know, nonviolence or, um, you know, thinking that we can live harmoniously and peacefully, like there are these visions, right? And, and they make sense. They're nice to think about, wow, wouldn't it be nice if we were in a world without any conflict? Wow, wouldn't it be nice if there weren't things that I wanted from other people that they didn't want to give me? that I still wanted to fight for, you know, wouldn't it be nice if I just could have the things that I want or that I could just not want anything. And then I wouldn't have to contend with the conflict to begin with. I could go inward and let go of all of my wants or all of my needs and I could just wither away. That would be so much easier. So I think that, you know, dialectically speaking, it's good to contend with this as a possibility, as a source. And I think there's something like, this is where the erotic comes in, right? It's like, Eros doesn't care about it being a good feeling or a bad feeling. Eros doesn't care about that. Like if you're going to be living in a world where the erotic is a channel or and an energy that's moving through things, it's going to take you places that maybe are uncomfortable or difficult and you have to contend with pain and loss and betrayal. And these are qualities of human existence that I think that are, are beautiful, that this is the tragic right? This is the embracing of the tragic nature of human being. And as long as we continue to die, which I know we're working on, but like, I think for most of us at this point, we're still contending with death and we ought to, um, we ought to partake in the process of dying, betrayal, loss, grief, the destruction of the ego, all of these things, they prepare you for dying. And to, to try and avoid it, you know, or to try and live in a fantasy where you, you've convinced yourself that you can live without these things, um, I think is actually dangerous. I think it's actually, uh, it's a troubling thing. It's something that we ought to be, we ought to really examine these other things before we let it go and, and try and move forward into a world where they don't exist or that's even possible. 
And then the other thing is I, the charge of all of this. I mean, it's, it's like giving up a whole realm of, of energy that could be sourced for great good. Like these things aren't necessarily inherently evil just because they cause us pain. Suffering isn't necessarily evil. And the pain is often, you know, the kind of energy that you need to get shocked out of your limited worldview and your limited sense of self, really your limited sense of self. You need energy in the system to like liquefy your structures of thought and allow you to fall into an annealing stage where you can recrystallize and become another person. You have to learn how to die. So, I mean, and I think if we're ever trying to make art, which I think is a worthwhile um, pursuit, then we absolutely need to be in touch with the full range of human experience rather than just like exiling, exiling some aspect of it um, because it's inconvenient and, and difficult and, and, and charged, right? There is something about it that's deeply challenging and we often do want to get away from. Um, so it's, it's interesting because it's almost like you want to hold some sort of paradoxical structure. Like, yes, we do want to move towards a place of, of, of acceptance of the world and, a, and an adaptability and a capacity to let go of ourselves, to kind of die at any moment in some sense, to be able to adjust our expectations. And it's, we also don't want to cheat in that process, right? Which means totally accepting the things that, that you do feel, the jealousy, the anger, the betrayal, the frustration. Um, you know, the impulse to take, the impulse to be predatory, like you need to face those things in your process of coming to a place where you can let go of them. And it's very, very tempting to cheat. It's extremely tempting to cheat. And if you say those are bad things and life would be better if we didn't have them, then it might be a kind of justification for suppression or exile of those, those qualities rather than an invitation to the table and to say that, you know, you are not necessarily a totally condemned human being if you have these feelings or if you if you if you even live with these passions it's not the end of the world for you right and and then i think that invites something that is very difficult for the mind to contend with just that there's nuance here there is nuance in confronting who is truly evil it's not just oh this person is angry or oh this person is acting out of self-interest in this moment. It's, it's something way more difficult to discern. And it would be much easier if we just knew that the bad people were the ones who were the, who were the Nazi symbol. That would be so much easier for our minds. So like an awareness of how the brain, the mind wants to reduce its, its like energy usage and just like simplify the re reality around it into these like categories that allow for them to now for it to dismiss things, or put it into a place where it thinks it knows what it is, we, we know that it's seeking that kind of ease and we should be very suspicious of it <laughs> and it's desire to cheat. So. The, uh, the virtue of suspicion often goes undervalued in our communities because when people get together and they, uh, they see and they intuit that integrative embrace 
is a very effective strategy for creating overall improvements in complex systems. They don't, by that recognition, necessarily understand what there is to be integrated. Right. And their brain is going to cheat on the things they experience. It's going to cheat by not allowing them to experience things they actually hold. It's going to cheat by making their architectural overview of the different systems that need to be integrated blind to hidden ideological dynamics and conflicts. So there's something that sexuality and art and analysis and critical social philosophy all seem to be bringing to the table, which is this question of, do you really know what's there to be integrated or not? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And then, the, you know, the other thing I would say, too, is that, you know, I'm, I'm a person of passions, right? So, like, I, I know that this is real, and I know that there are people like this who are also not evil. You know, I don't think that I'm evil. And yet, I've also met people who don't seem to have these problems, like, like actually, you know, and I've tested them to see whether or not they were cheating. And it didn't seem like they had the same problem. So then I think that's also an important thing to remember is that people have different like clusters of these things in, in their bodies and their experiences. And just because it is a thing in the world and we need to be aware of, doesn't mean that any given person has that, has that kind of burden of the passions inside of them. There's some people who just don't. Um, and, and, and there's, a lack there too of not being moved by passions and and i think that those people serve other kinds of things but then a person who's involved in the passions and i think many of us are it it gives you a sense of the range of possibility in the human condition and we'll always have to contend with the range of possibility of human being rather than any particular ideal or any simplified kind of notion of, of how we could be, you know, if we could just pick the people that we like, you know, or we are like, then, then we'd have the utopia, right? When in fact, it's just not even, it's not even something you can expect in a family. Like you can have, you can have flukes, you know, you can have people who are totally equanimous and non-argumentative, and then they have a child, <laughs> that child is full of passion. So it's not something that you can really control for. And I don't know that, um, I mean, the greater goal, I think of a lot of these, these movements is to move to a place of non-coercion. Um, and if, if that's really the goal, then we have to, you have to be able to sit with that child who's impassioned or the fluke in your family or the anomaly or like, or, or maybe even the norm and figure out how to empathize with it, even though it might be something that is, um, unusual or or reminds you of of something that either you're not or something that you are but you've exiled in who you are so there's some there's some contending with the limitations of your ability to know and to see that happens when you enter into this like sexual intimate familial space and ideology becomes you know it's 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 attractive right it's, wouldn't it be nice if there was just a template that we could enter into that would harmonize all of these um, inconsistencies and asymmetries. So, yeah. What do BDSM and Tantra have in common? <laughs> um, I 
I mean, I think that there's this kind of, and I wouldn't say I'm an expert in either one of these things. So this is my kind of understanding of these things as symbols, right? What they kind of invoke and uh, what they promise, I think, for, for, for uh, people who are on the outside is that this there's this play with this world of, of sexuality and kind of a, it's interesting because I think BDSM in a way can become very controlled. And in that sense, almost like a kind of bureaucratic way of engaging uh, with these energies. And there's there's something interesting about that. Like there's a like because of that, there's a lot of. I'm at my grandma's house, so everything is loud. <laughs> yeah, so I, I I think that there's 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 a lot to learn in terms of negotiating. Like there's a formalization of the negotiation process that um, I think teach has taught me about okay, like what's what have they discovered about what it means to enter into um, a world of vulnerability with someone else, um, a world where you're drawing in or you're bringing in things that are imperceptible to you but might surface themselves as a, as like an emotional experience or like an orgasm or something that like is a deeply moving kind of total totalizing peak experience where the nervous system is kind of like taken into these like uh, high energy states, right? So you're entering into something that's like a psychoactive scenario when you're engaging with a lot of these activities um, and these worlds. And so there's this natural kind of, I mean, it's almost like a understanding of magic. Like there's a container that's set, there's like agreements that are made outside of it. Um, there's, there's a sense of your limits that you begin to investigate. You begin to learn where are your limits and you, you might go too far in some contexts and you have to kind of learn through this process um, of iteration, like where, what you're willing to do and what you're willing, where, what you're interested in. But to me, there is something about it that is also almost like, you know, you step, you're out and then you're in, you know, there's like a kind of, and then when you go into the space, it's like kind of different, you know, it has different properties. It has different ways of being. And it's, it's has this, otherworldliness to it that's kind of cultivated intentionally you know it's it's and there's a performativity to it in that sense whereas i think there's something about tantra that's about holding you know it's about holding all of it you know and like coming into a place where there's an acceptance and kind of entanglement between the um like the beauty and the ecstasy and the sense of like closeness and safety that can come from sexual experience and also the carnal predatory things about it that um, scare us, make us feel like we're, 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 we're animal, right? Because we've kind of bifurcated our sense of nature. This is something um, Benita Roy taught me actually in one of her talks that like we kind of associate like bravery and loyalty and ecstasy and beauty as things that are like human and predation and violence and conflict and um, you know those are animal things when really all of that is the animal but still all animal animals are very brave they're very loyal they experience ecstasy they, they, they have bodies right you know and we're like them and and, and they also experience the desire to, 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 
to prey upon others or, or to run and hide or to, you know, whatever. It's, it's, that's all the animal. So how can you like hold all of the animal? Both it's, it's kind of exiled nature and also the things about it that we exalt as kind of the pinnacle of what it means to be human. And accept that. And then to say, oh, well, maybe there's something else. Maybe it's not just, for us, it's not just a matter, matter of being mere animal. Okay, so maybe these other qualities, these, these are aspects of our character. This is like a development of our nature, our being, our sense of being in our bodies, our, our, our channel to this, like, to the sexual source that we all have. Yes, that's a being in the animal, but there's more than that in the human being. So to not mistake certain qualities of human existence for what it means to be human, instead to see them within the context of how things kind of emerge through this through this evolutionary process through time. And like, you know, I think Greg Henriquez does a good job of kind of like weighing this out as well in terms of as humans, we're, we enter into this justification layer we enter into the world of symbols, right? That's kind of these qualities that make us uniquely human. And these other capacities should be worked on too. Like in terms of a, 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 I like to say sophisticated human culture, the whole being is there. The whole being is participating. The whole being is being developed to become nuanced, sophisticated, discerning, integrous. And that includes playing with the animal. Of course it does. Because that's that's where we are. <laughs> that's what we are. That's what that's like. But it's not all of what we are, right? And we shouldn't forget that. Like that uh, for these like higher level properties that we also have access to. And those things also need to be played with. But there are kind of there's a physics to the psyche that that operates differently than the physics of the body. And and yet they are also connected because we're emerging out of a whole body. So. Getting those things straight, I think, in terms of these conceptual models, I mean, it has been very, very important for me, and I think it's very important for people kind of in this space to kind of sort out, okay, what are the properties of human being? What do I see as uniquely human? What do I see as part of the animal? How do I live in the animal? How do I ascend into the things that um, are human in their uniqueness and kind of become an emergent whole? Bringing to mind a quote I like from Nietzsche where he says something like, um, if you've discovered that the soul is a name for something in the body, you have not thereby disproven the soul, but proven that you did not understand the body. <laughs> Bangers, you know, he's just really on it. Nonstop hits. God, where, where is Nietzsche today? I wish he was here with us right now. How we get like a, a, a Tantra, there, there's something about the approach to tantra that can lead it to be um disembodied not understand the animal not understand the full range even though the the rhetoric of tantra is that that's what it's trying to do right there's been a lot of western tantra at least that has become people in white robes gazing into each other's eyes and trying to make a heart connection and there's nothing wrong with that but it's mm -hmm. insufficient for uh, rebuilding a sacred sexuality that takes the animal and also takes the unassimilable core of conflict and death and things like that seriously. So, you know, how, how what is that bifurcation? What causes a person to go one way than the other? And how would we help people have a more inclusive, more integrative Tantra rather than a Tantra that quarantines itself in the nice zones? 
we're right back at the same problem again. I mean, and it seems like the drag in Western culture in particular really brings it up to the head and uh, kind of unifies the justification system with, with like being like, oh, well, we can justify good. We can justify human dignity. We can justify being nice to each other. We can't justify being predatory. We can't justify harming each other. We can't justify violence. You know, and and so it's it's like trying to harmonize those things and ignoring this kind of like pattern of emergence. And it does. It's, I mean, I think that it's generally like a problem in human life. I mean, it's you can go back into philosophy and see that there are philosophers who seem to privilege this kind of experience of the mind over the body um, and a sense of the body being this messy place of, of like death and destruction and like sex. And it's like, oh, like we, wouldn't, we don't want to be there. Like, let's go up into the mind and like we can figure everything out. Right. So this this does seem to be part of the kind of perennial problem of, of the human condition. And when you're living in a context where like a whole world has been built around this institutions, structures and social convention, um, even even like the hippie movement or like these kind of countercultural things have this kind of convention inside of them of nonviolence and uh, kind of trying to cast out the conflict in, into, into the edges and pretending like maybe we're better than that. Um, like we're higher. There's like a kind of moral grandstanding that comes, comes with all of that. It's the kind of thing that I think many people may not ever wake up to. I, I think that we have to contend with that. Um, and that for some people, we may, you may just have to be patient with them and, and play with them and try and bring that into the frame. I think, I think that's the beauty of art, right? It's like, it, it can reframe things, right? If you watch like a film that's arresting, you know, that like scrambles your associations, and I mean, going back to the to the wearing the wearing a Nazi outfit, you know, to engage in some sort of social activity, it like it like glitches the mind. It's like, oh, I don't know how to deal with that, you know. Um, when that's done intentionally within the work of art, you can really quickly just get people to find the insights on their own where they're at. You know, they're not being told this is the way life is. You need to contend with this. It's like. No, I'm portraying something. Um, I'm showing something that's multidimensional and synthetic and associative, you know, and, and you can you can participate in that thing. You can be drawn into it. You are, you are a participant. Like the audience is there in the film, right? Um, the eye of the audience, the eye of the witness is part of how it's being crafted, right? And so you kind of get sucked into this position where you're being drawn into this world and, and the frames that are being given to you are how, and, and how you relate to those symbols being associated with each other and all of the all the contextual meaning that gets drawn in there that can totally be the energy that you need in your system to kind of bring you to this higher level where you liquefy and it then i think also it can be safer for people because it's easier to talk about a movie than it is to be like oh wow maybe i've had like a really simplified notion of the self and you know, I was a fool and I didn't see these things. And now I'm like contending with them. Like, you'd be like, hmm, this character in the film was doing this really interesting thing, you know, and, and kind of let it crystallize in your mind and give you perspective, not only on yourself, but on others in such a way that allows for you to 
to, to approach it, right? Um, and maybe this is the thing, maybe this is the danger of, of confrontation and exposure, um, because, and maybe this is the problem that we're facing with the digital as well, is that it's kind of like everything is being surfaced all at once. And it's often being drawn into your world before you're ready for it. And so it's like everything is being thrust. You have to contend with things that you weren't necessarily asking for, or prepared for. Whereas if you're watching something that's, that's, and there can be elements of that, but it also is an invitation. It's like, oh, come close to me. And I think that's the thing about art. It's trying to say, come close to me, come see me, come look at me, choose to look at me, choose to engage with me, choose to let yourself be overtaken by me. Let me scramble your mind, right? And because it's something where it's about attraction, right? It's about drawing in, it's about seduction. Someone does choose to enter into it. And that allows for the kind of going towards that gives people an openness uh, and a receptivity. If it's, if it's like, oh, I'm being, oh, like you're telling me I have to deal with these things? Like I'm closed, right? It's like comes to you too fast. You're like, I can't deal with this. And you shut people down. And in that sense, you might be perpetuating their state of being for much longer because you're overwhelming their system. So, you know, the way that, we can invite things. I mean, Peter has this thing, he says, seduce the culture, right? And I think that's part of it. It's like, okay, we create a space, create a lantern, create an environment, invite people through seduction, not through coercive seduction, but through this like truly being desirable, truly having things that are worth people's attention. And if someone can identify that and draw closer, then that's something that they're making, a choice that they're making within the context of their life path. They can get as close as far as they want. They can go in, hang out and then leave if it's too much. And that's, I think, a kind of structural environment that can invite people into that context without forcing them um, to contend with things that they're not ready for. Hashtag less rapey art. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> non predatory art, although maybe Bard would say that's impossible. Um, maybe I'm falling into the same trap. <laughs> Desire. There's a couple broad ways of thinking about where desire comes from, right? There's some people who've thought that our desires reflect some deeper hidden part of ourselves, like it's the signature of the soul. Uh, there's some people who think that desire is basically learned, perhaps through mutual imitation. And there have been some people who thought that desire, this was Timothy Leary's idea, that there's moments of chemical imprint vulnerability. And whatever you're exposed to when you have those particular chemical vulnerabilities at that moment are locked in deeper than anything you would learn through your interactions with people. For you, what's a useful way of thinking about how people come to desire what they desire? Mm -hmm. I think all of those are true. Um, because desire, once again, it's an abstraction, right? Like we understand what it, what we mean by that, but I think that there's, it's a name for something that has many different forms in terms of how it shows up within you, how it interacts with you. I think that I've like, just personally, like I've been, I've had desire for things that were implanted in me by, you know, either by the culture, by my parents, or like by some sort of weird idea that I got when I was like five. I was like, oh, I'm going to be this way. I desire that. And it's, you know, that kind of thing. And 
I would say that that's like, that is an expression of desire, certainly. I wouldn't dismiss it as non-desire because desire is the force. It's not the thing that it's being channeled towards, right? So there's all sorts of ways in which desire can be reverted, put it that way, that you can channel desire into places that is actually not drawing you into a cycle where it's, 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 it's sourcing you. There's, there's all these sinks, you know, uh, your, your desire can be drawn into vacuums where it just sucks you in and kind of takes away your capacity to continue to generate that force. So I think participation in life, like actually trying to pursue the things that you desire is one of the best ways <laughs> to discover, okay, wow, I just tried to go for this job. I'm here. I hate this job. I don't want to do this. You know, or I just tried to buy this thing. Okay, this thing is not making me happy. What am I doing with that? You know, there's there's um, an iterative process. And once again, you can admit that you're the fool, that you've been drawn into something that it did not actually fulfill you or get you into this cycle of deeper resonance with yourself. Then you can say, oh, well, that just captured my desire. That was a capturing of my capacity to desire. And that, that is in no way fixed. I mean, desire is anything if not malleable, right? It can be channeled to so many different kinds of things. And so it's, it's, it's about, I think it's a, there's different processes in human existence. There's a process of clarification of oneself um, where you're letting go of, 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 of I think, limit, limited structures or notions of self, right? So if you can clarify your sense of self, then I think you can feel more confident that your desire is rooted in some sort of truth instead of being cast into things that are flimsy, uh, impotent, right? They don't actually find you grounded or, or, or um, deepened. Instead, you're just like, you know, like catching, catching raindrops. And, and, and that's, I think that we feel intuitively that that's unsatisfactory. And it's not always the case that we recognize how to get out of it. But there is a kind of dissatisfaction that comes from that. And, and also, I think this is where predation comes in. And I think this is where like a critique of our social structures comes into play. It's like people, you know, people discovered that they could generate desire. They could, they could implant, you know, objects of desire and they can draw that desire out of people. Through, through pretty minimal forms of exercising power, just targeted things. And that is social, like societal manipulation on a mass scale. Um, and that's not stopping, right? And, and if anything, it's been decentralized. So like now a normal person like me, you know, I could go learn how to, how to use these things and, and, people. and I could build a whole internet following based on um, the skills that I'm learning. Uh, to, to generate desire in other people. But the other thing about this is I think it does compromise the self. I think it does. I don't think that, I think once again, you're making a deal with the, with the devil, you're cheating to, to like harvest desire from people in a way that undermines their sovereignty or their clarity of being. Uh, because in a way you have to rigidify their, their objects of desire. You have to get them to convince themselves that there's some sort of fixed quality to what they desire, the object. The desire is not in them, it's on the object. 
And so if they lose that object, there's some sort of catastrophe, right? So the fear of the loss of the object motivates this continual farming of the desire. And you have to get people to do that, you know, to do that. And, the, you know, the, the, the cheaper kind of the, the bait, you know, I think the worse off people end up being in terms of the rigidification of their sense of self, their concept of where that desire could even be directed to. And I don't know, there's just something about that that seems perverse to me. And something that ought to be ruthlessly critiqued in our, in our culture. It ought to be ruthlessly critiqued. And not even to say that it doesn't, it isn't that people don't have the permission to do this or that, it, or that we need to have laws or something that says like, oh, any thirst trap needs to be censored or something like that. It's like, no, but you can say something about it and you can come, you can come with a feeling of integrity about that statement and make it known. I think you can make it known without saying or declaring that it's some sort of fixed moral structure. I go two ways. I'm, I'm thinking of this scenario where people are always already in a situation relative to their desire that requires a certain amount of A, suspicion and B, bravery to investigate and follow and interrogate their desire to see which of their desires are actually serving them. That's the ongoing human condition then you've got a situation now as you were saying where the proliferation of desires and the proliferation of the capacity to hack our desiring program makes it such that we can't necessarily follow them all because there's a very high there's too many and there's a very high probability they've been designed by someone else to disservice us in some way and then on the other side of that there's this thing about like when you followed it how do you how do you process the result you go this felt sufficient this felt insufficient i'm more or less satisfied what do i do with that in order to assimilate how do i ponder the conclusion having fulfilled the desire what do i do in myself what do you do in yourself to digest that to come to a place of relative clarity about whether it was or was not a desire that served you mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think this is, I think potentially this is where the ascetic turn can be quite helpful, um, which I think becomes a kind of the way for many people. Um, but uh, I think it doesn't have to be the way, but it is a way of clarif- clarifying the nervous system. Because the thing about desire is it can totally, it can totally take you over. And totally, almost parasitically, um, fixate your nervous system um, on the state of being, and it's psychoactive in certain contexts. So I think if you do attain something, which you know, with desire is a slippery thing. Uh, I think it's more that you know, it, yeah, it's it's almost like the the attainment of the thing it causes it causes a recession of desire. You often feel some kind of, I mean, like, what is it? Le, le petit mot <laughs> in French. I mean, that's a very like resonant phrase, right? Like you, okay, you have the object you desire, you've gotten off, you know? Okay, but now there's this like, oh, this like recession, like the tide goes out. It's like, okay, like there's no, 
there's no power here anymore and I'm sleeping and I'm dying, you know, and it's, it's the energy, the force is gone. And so it's, it's often a question of like, how do we invite it back in? And if you can live through those stages where the desire leaves you and not kind of turn in on yourself and punish yourself for having lost it, which is partially due to understanding the nature of it, right? That it's coming from you and it has certain properties and the object is something which, that, that feels fixed in the moment, but is actually um, an abstract category. Like any given thing could be placed into the shape of the object. And once you've got it, or once you don't, once you've lost hope with your capacity to get the thing, um, the desire will probably drain out of you and you will be left as, as a corpse in some sense, right? Like as a, as a shell of what you were when you were filled with it, right? There's so much purpose and meaning and, and drive that comes from living with desire. And it can feel like a huge come down when it leaves you, huge. But if we can embrace that, that, that process, you know, the kind of oceanic quality of it, um, I think that you can be intentional, right? Like you can retreat in a way that's not about, oh, I'm leaving the world. Oh, like, what was me? Oh, I can't deal with it. Like, oh, this means that I have to get away from everything and I can't, you know, that this world is so bad and perverse and fucked up and I, I takes away from me. But it can be like, okay, I'm going to do this now. I'm going to go, I'm going to go get my hands in the dirt. I'm going to meditate. I'm going to sit with the flowers. I'm going to be in a way that like calms my nervous system down clarifies my experience within myself it doesn't you don't even need to reflect you don't even need to psychoanalyze you don't even need to process in an abstract way or like an analytical way or anything you can just sit with the body that you have afterwards and open up the space for desire to emerge again and i think if you I think if you go through that process, actually, you flush yourself. Like you, you, oh, I'm going for something I desire. It doesn't work out, or it did, or it, or it didn't. I'm either betrayed or I'm satiated. Now the desire leaves. Okay, I'm going to sit with that experience. I'm going to clarify myself. I'm going to understand myself as the fool, right? Because no matter what, you're the fool, even if you get the thing that you want, because the desire goes away. <laughs> um, and the desire felt so real, right? It felt like the realest thing in the world. And suddenly you realize, oh, the object wasn't the desire. The desire is something in me. Shit. And now it's gone. I don't know how to get it back. I, I need an object for it, right? And then that feels foolish because it's yours. It's your feeling, your capacity. And yet you need something to channel it into, this outside thing. So it's not a totally sovereign experience. So being able to let it wash wash out, let it re recess, let it like go out um, and clarify and um, open up your nervous system for it to arise again. And I think if you go through, it's like breathing, it's like an expansion and contraction, right? If you go through this process, if you can invite it and not resist it, I think you can really tune your desire, really tune it exceptionally well, where it can become a force that's operating in a time that you don't even under, you don't even need to understand. You just trust it. You trust that it's going to take you where you need to go. But it's not something that you're necessarily born into or even invited to do. Like I think there's a lot of 
advice manufacturing, convention manufacturing, telling you, oh, you need to be doing this thing or you need to be scared of this outcome or, um, you know, basically covert threats that exist in our society and around, uh, in our families, in our friendships. And so it can be very hard to, to center your desire within yourself and to keep past those forms of coercion to the, to the, to the outside and center in yourself, right? But it's a multidimensional space. You, you, there's no one thing that's going on. It's like, it's structural, right? It has many elements to it. And it's complex geometry. Like that's the nature of the psyche. It's like, it's physics is different. You know, it, it has no gravity. You know, you can get, you can get drawn up a mountain, a mountain of desire. And then at the peak, you can just, you can fall. And then you realize, oh, there's no gravity here. <laughs> this is just energy. This fall is just energy. I am not going to die. I can, I can just fall or I could stop falling. It's, it's, it doesn't operate the way that the world, you know, the physical, the metaphors of the physical world don't always completely um, encapsulate the nature of, of the psychic realm. And yet so much of the stuff that we're talking about right now, it's physics lives there. Um, money lives there, right? Uh, desire lives there, Eros lives there. These are these other qualities like intimacy lives there, right? Math, <laughs> that kind of Several elements of that come together for me to a generalized query about gender-like polarization dualities, right? Both yeah. in biological history and in the conversations around sexuality and sacred sexuality, masculine, feminine polarization plays an enormous role. But that a dyad is very simple compared to complex geometries. Mm -hmm. right? And we could think that on the one hand, the plurality and omnidirectionality and complexity of the world means that a duality is really insufficient way to think about this. We could also say, well, no, not necessarily. You know, the, the, the feminine yin element always stands for the unknown and the excluded and the conflicted. So all of that, what you're calling complexity and plurality, that actually fits into one half of the dualism. So it is sufficient. So is it sufficient or insufficient or is it actively harmful? Because the math thing reminds me of these studies that were done saying that when girls have to identify their gender at the beginning of a math test, they do worse than they might otherwise do. So it may be that the constellation of the simplified organization categories is actively bad for us in some ways. So is the basic archetypal concept of sexual polarization sufficient, insufficient, or harmful? I think that, you know, there's like, we need more grammar. Right. This is a problem in general. That's like a, a thing that we're coming to many in, in many like layers of this conversation, right? Like being like, like being like a simple dichotomy, like life and death. Okay, well, because you know that's just not good enough. Yes, that is a simple dichotomy. But like in terms of like, oh, there's paradoxes in that. Like your your whole process of of living is a process of dying, and how you die is about how you've lived. So there's all of these kinds of strange entanglements and nuances that kind of fill in the space that's created by these very, um, very general structures, right? It's like, 
we don't mistake a frame of a house for a house. But most people don't understand like, oh, there's a structure here. It follows certain laws. And in order to, to have um, a organic relationship with this place, there needs to be little steps that are created to fill in the nuances. Um, like, I guess I would use this metaphor, like there's big gears, like polarity of, of masculine and feminine. Um, but then there are all these tiny little gears. There's all these tiny, tiny little things that are going on. And you have to build all the little pieces in between for those tiny little things to, to connect to these larger movements that, um, that are operating. And if you try and cram these things together without building that kind of structure of emergence, you're gonna fuck up your gears. You're not gonna be able to move the system. The thing is gonna break apart. It's gonna damage itself. And I think, you know, it's it's a matter of understanding. <laughs> I'm understanding like, okay, yeah, you know, there's an underlying structure here. The structure of polarity, I think, you can even just, you can, if, if the gender thing is problematic for you, just think of it as magnetism. If you want to have a current, you need two sides of a magnet. Like if you only have one, it's not going to work, right? And the, and the magnet's seeking something it wants, you know, and the minute it happens, it's like, oh. Um, and the, like, I mean, the property of our reality, right? Like the way in which we've even gotten here through the discovery of these things, being parts of physical processes. I mean, to me, it's, it's, it seems like there's an elemental aspect to it, right? And, and, and that to dismiss it because there's higher levels of emergence where things are like more nuanced and, and there's more particularity, really makes the point. <laughs> it's like really makes the point. Um, and it really, it's more, it's more indicative of a, of a simplified notion of the self or a simplified notion of, uh, in the mind, the justification system. That's like, oh, something subversive about this thing. It's like, we can't have this dichotomy. Like, uh, I, I don't want it to be this or something. And it's like, okay, well, you're fighting, you're resisting a property of the world and reality and the fact that like, there is a kind, there's, there's an inheritance, there's an inheritance that goes beyond any particular body. You know, it's, it's, you can find it in so many places. And the fact that by hitting this, you know, in the level of physics, by uh, at least of electromagnetism, by, by hitting that knowledge and being able to work with it, we've been able to just completely explode our capacity for agency, you know, our capacity to change the world as a species. I mean, what kind of reinforcement do you need of that being an elemental property that that if you channel it properly, if you understand its properties, um, if you understand how to play with it? I mean, imagine, right? If we could only get this right, you know, <laughs> uh, what, what, what would happen, right? If we could get this right. Uh, and and not re be reductive, right? Not be reductive, be like, oh, you're a woman, so you must hold the feminine. Like, oh, you're a man, so you must hold the max masculine. And like, if any, if there's any androgyny, if there's any mixing, then obviously you must get it out of you, and you must do something else because you're you're a perversion of these elemental qualities. You know. Once again, the grammar, right? We need more grammar than that. It's, it's, you can have more sophisticated sentences than man, masculine, woman, feminine. What's a good definition of what the positive and negative poles are here? Right? We're looking at not just at the physiology, but also at the 
imaginal and the history. If you're the alien anthropologist surveying all human information artifacts over the course of history, what's, wow. your, what's your conclusion about what masculine and feminine are pointing to? What What is the hieroglyph there? What's yeah. Know, what's the formulation of the feminine and the formulation of the masculine that is a little more adequate than the one we normally use? Yeah, I guess what I do is I just don't start there. I think that that's starting at a level of emergence that's just like, it's it's on a symbolic structure that I think um, is more confusing than it is like illuminating, particularly like, once again, we're in a context where words are just being inflated. <laughs> so it's like, it's help, especially gendered language, gendered words, right? Like there's so much um, social conflict over the usage of these things. Like it's a war. Of symbol of, of symbols and how they're used that's occurring. So I'm I just am like okay, well, let's toss that out. Whatever the principles are there. Like I don't need to use that word. I I mean and and there's this kind of duality thing. It's slippery, right? Because there's different ways of getting at it. Like I like to think of things in terms of the inside and the outside. I think that that's a that's a beautiful way of understanding it. It's not quite about polarity, but it does draw you into this like okay the inside of being the way that i conceive of it it's like a big hole <laughs> it's like a big hole it's where the thing is coming from you know it's where awareness is coming from it's coming something coming out of right so um it's like there's this vacuum you could call it the void what do we associate with the void oh the feminine what are women like oh well they're very internal they're very internal they're very aware of this like associative psychic realm and it's physics the outside is like the legibility structure right it's the thing that's interfacing right it's the shell you know um there's a wonderful episode from the jim rutt show where he's talking to this like evolutionary theorist about the cambrian explosion um and what the guy said i thought was beautiful he was like Un until things started eating each other we it, it was kind of like a flat there wasn't a lot of uh, hierarchical complexity. It was the explosion um, that came from predation, from the fact that things started to make shells. Like, oh, this thing's eating me. I need to find a way to protect my soft little body. That's the whole world of complexity that emerged, right? So the inside and the outside, the shell and the soft part, right? That's when you start to get burrowing because things are running away from each other, you know, and then burning up of all of the sedimentary layers, right? This is how we know that life is there right? Like what an incredible thing, right? So the inside and the outside, the discovery of this kind of structure within our evolutionary history produced the kind of complexity um, that we're now, we are, we are the result of, right? And we have an inside and an outside. I mean, we're very soft bodied already, right? We've kind of given up our outsides. We've given up our nails. We've given up our teeth, right? Um, kind of allowed technology to become our outside, right? And men have naturally gravitated towards this. Men are the outside. That is, that's the way that it is. They're much more likely to sacrifice themselves. They're much more likely to engage in violent conflict. Um, they're, they're also, their brains are much more likely to try and concretize systems and build them in reality. Like they're interested in how to harmonize the brain physical properties of reality in order to construct things, construct physical things. 
women are the inside, right? And this is this is just natural, right? This was be this would just be obvious <laughs> to anyone in human history, um, because of because of our sexual natures and our physical natures, and it's the necessity of like women to be protected, particularly in any environment where um, there's any significant amount of violence going on. And you could see this, right? Like men built armor; they literally built shells for themselves so they go out and stab each other with with sharp things that they figured out about you know, how metals work, how the property of matter can be shaped to serve this, um, this predatory drive that causes the creation of the shell, the creation of the shell. And that's also what's driven our, the process of the construction of civilization. So I think that, you know, that's where I spot start in terms of the inside and the outside. And, and I think like the polarity there it's challenging, right? So, um, especially in the world today, like if you live in a city and you're like, let's say you're a woman and you're cultivating your, your softness and your receptivity to the world and you become super attuned, like you can smell when your neighbor, you know, is making a certain food, right? You can hear every single sound. You, you bring it into yourself and you lose touch with your ego right? You're just, you're just, you're just a receiver for the world around you. You can hear when someone yells outside and it fills you up and suddenly you're not only in touch, you're, you're, you're maybe out of touch with you and your ego structure and suddenly you're drawn into this emotional process that, that you've, that has touched you where you are and you're receiving. You try to go to the grocery store, I get on the subway, it's loud it's dirty there's lots of people like it's like the i think the the thing that i think of is like okay yeah if you're if you're a woman and you've really cultivated this soft space you're in the bath you're comfortable you're you've lost a sense of where your body is and the water is and everything's harmonious and beautiful and then in one second you're thrown into a metal shop like your, your nervous system is just going to be accosted, accosted, and you're probably going to become traumatized by that event because you haven't worked on the gears, you know? And so I think like specialization of these things in our world is dangerous. It's dangerous. And if, and, and, and for women, for, for anyone who's trying to cultivate the feminine, the receptive, you have to figure out what is your armor. What is the thing that's going to protect you from the your nervous system being accosted? And there's lots of ways to, to figure that out. You can go live in a rural place where you have control over the things that are coming into your environment and it's tranquil and, you know, at a pace of living that, you know, allows for your nervous system to kind of be at ease with the things that are happening. And then you, if you want to go and be, um, accosted you want to receive things that are unpredictable and chaotic you can make that choice but it's not like you have to do that to go to get necessities so that's one way of doing it there's lots of ways of doing it you know uh you can send your husband to the grocery store <laughs> um so there's there's like ways of doing that but i think for many people it's just it's better to um I mean, either the cheater's way, which is to say like, oh, I'm just gonna be numb. I'm not gonna really build a, sh a, a good shell, a good outside, and I'm not gonna really cultivate a good inside. I'm just gonna be kind of like trying to 
meet in the middle and just not really in touch with anything and just kind of like bumping around because I am actually not experiencing the senses and I'm not experiencing what it would mean to protect myself and my senses. Or the sophisticated kind, which is to say, okay, I'm cultivating receptivity, cultivating my, my ability to hold the void and let things come into me. But I'm also cultivating the ability to move out of that realm in some sort of like magical way, right? Through, through all of this, you can use symbols, you can use, um, you know, totems, like there's all sorts of manners of which you can kind of invoke a kind of the psyche to, to, to switch between, between those stages. And I mean, you can learn from BDSM in that, right? Like, or, or performance, like acting or any of these things, like the people who, who do this, who switch between roles, who switch between receiving and, act, and, and, and acting in the world, they know these skills. These are not something like totally mystical. <laughs> it's not mystical at all. It, it really is just like learning the capacity to do it. And then you can kind of move between these things. But there might be some people who choose to hold polarities. And you know, for a man who, who really leans into the polarity of masculinity, like he's gonna wanna have a woman who's leaning into the polarity of femininity. Because if you're, if you're a man and you go too far and you don't have this connection or, uh, or receptivity, you could become psychopathic, right? And, and totally disconnected from your body. And it doesn't even have to look like some form of direct violence. And that's the thing that's going on in our world today. Like it's the violence that's occurring is not a violence of, of brutality, of, of blood and gore. It's a violence that is soft, you know, and, and coercive and about consolidation of power and centralization. And, and it's often gathering around, you know, the essence of kind of desire itself, which is money. Um, which, you know, moves everything, right? Because it is, it is an expression of desire like in its most abstract, pure kind of liquid form, right? So that's how I conceive of it. I mean, I think like personally, uh, I've gone through this journey being really masculine oriented, being really interested in shields, you know, and um, protecting myself, you know, I was like a punk, I like to wear leather, you know, I, I wanted to look cool and intimidating. <laughs> but as I've gotten older, I've realized that I think particularly for women, uh, coming, getting in touch with the receptive qualities, like the capacity that women have, like the sensory capacity that women have on average for receptivity, for connecting to the void, I think is much higher than men um, on average. And so if you can lean into that and, and, and have someone holding you, have a man who's, who's chosen to hold you, uh, or be able to to develop the code code switch um, so that you can you can like specialize to some degree in in this receptive quality in this feminine form and also protect yourself if you need to go out in the world I think is something that um, I would encourage women if they hear that call to to go towards it and I think it's actually I think it is something that um, would really <laughs> cause the blossoming of of our of our communities uh of, of the world that we're in you know in terms of like this liminal this liminal place like it and if men i think the other thing about this you know in terms of the kind of baggage you know the narcissism of historical baggage 
is that there's this idea that these things are bad. You know, that, that, that the feminine is abject because it's kind of incomprehensible. Um, it's, it's kind of unordered, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's not, it's, it's, it's illegible. I mean, and so it, it, in our, in our society, which has really grown from the masculine psyche, you know, this, the, sh the shield or the outside, the outside has kind of built all of our structure without connecting and, and continuing to be in relationship to the void. So we're, we're facing a, a cultural inertia and an architectural inertia, like literally like the built environment has an accosting quality to our senses. It forces us into this more like shielded position, forces us to specialize in this way. So you're, you are in a way like having to work with, with the hostile world. And it's a difficult call to take on. You have to figure out how to do it. Um, but if it can be respected, right? If women can be respected in going down this path, and held and supported, I think that there's a lot of potential for leveling up, if, if I could use that metaphor. Um, and I think maybe it's necessary if we're going to be playing on the level of centuries here, we're going to be getting through this liminal epoch. I don't know that we can do it without women being connected to the void and without cultivating that specialization, that polarity. So it's a it's a it's it's a task that if you feel the call for it, I think it's 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 outside of your time. It's outside of your lifetime. It's 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 in a time that's beyond you. You know, um, like I think both men and women are feeling that time. So you just I'm have to listen. Curious about um, symmetry or asymmetry and trauma. Like um, you were talking about this move from from the void, from the bathtub to the machine shop, from the inside to the outside, right? And there's an increase of energy, but it's not the kind of increase of neural energy that we're looking for because it's involuntary, it's too abrupt, it has more of this traumatic quality. If you think about it going the other way, if you think about the move from the masculine to the feminine, from the outside to the inside, is that equally traumatic or is there an asymmetry in those traumas? Mm. Mm. I love that question. Um, it really seems like, and this is maybe where the psychedelic stuff comes in, and Timothy Leary, uh, what you what you brought up in terms of uh, the kind of the imprints of certain experiences. It seems like going from the outside to the inside is usually, I mean, it can't like it can be traumatic, but it's it's usually even if you're facing some kind of difficulty, some relived experience of, of horror, of, of not being shielded from something and having your softness eviscerated by something beyond your co comprehension. If you're, if you're brought back into that kind of world, there's a capacity to hold it and reconsolidate it. Um, it seems like the danger is in the reintegration, right? It's, it's, it's whether or not you are taken advantage of, advantage of when you're in that vulnerable state. So others, you know, um, or your context being foolish and, and maybe doing it when you're not supposed to, 
or um, inviting inviting that state of vulnerability in a con in a context that's not safe to you, right? So like the, if you're going inside and the outside is still there trying to take you over, then you put yourself in some sort of dangerous position and you might have to deal with the fallout of that, of that mistake, of that folly of not respecting yourself, essentially respecting your softness and your vulnerability and like its capacity to be manipulated or harmed. But yeah, it does seem like it's more about in the annealing stage when the crystallization is occurring. That's when it seems like things can, can become harmful again. Like you can misinterpret the things that happen to you. Um, you can have, you know, you could, something could happen to you. you. You might not protect yourself enough while you're, while you're processing afterwards and end up in a situation that you can't handle in over your head, right? So it's, it seems that there is an asymmetry there. That's, and I, um, it's interesting too, because the move that we need to make, I think culturally is going the outside in and you know what the kind of the promise of that is that okay if we can hold that properly we could actually we could make some kind of like major move uh, fairly quickly one person at a time because it's just like such an energetic shift and it can do so much with so, which with like the gentlest the gentlest of um of, of like taps you can really give someone else the space to hold themselves. Yeah, that's interesting. Who do you think is a good thinker on sexuality? Who do you go back to in a way that's rewarding? Mm. I, really, I mean, I like the work of Esther Perel. I think she's kind of exceptional in many ways. She's both like popular and also elusive. So she's managed to become, you know, somebody that, you know, the New York Times would write about, <laughs> uh, kind of conventionally accepted while also being, you know, in my opinion, I think she's saying a lot of things that uh, are implicit criticisms of American culture because of her international background, the fact that she works in like six languages. Her perspective is uh, totally unique in that way, but she doesn't, you have to read between the lines with her. And I think that makes her all the more interesting to me because there is something in, like, you know, in terms of like, whatever you want to call it, like dodging the bullets of being a public figure. Um, I think you end up in a Straussian sphere by necessity. and. You can, but you can kind of present yourself in such a way uh, that anybody who's really listening and receiving can read the lines. Um, so her work is interesting to me. I think Royka, <laughs> I think Camille Paglia, her work I think has been like sexual persona has, has been something I've, I've referred to over and over again um, because I think she's really getting to something in terms of romantic decadence and its properties, like when desire becomes recursive and loses that polarity of the masculine and the feminine, uh, how you end up kind of succumbing to the death drive. You know, she does a really good job illustrating that through the historical progress of like Western art. Um, and I think, you know, we, we have a strong current of romanticism in our culture. And there's also, there is this tendency um, to collapse, right? To 
to cheat, to, to um, harmonize preemptively these, these polarized states. And then, you know, this kind of gets into family drama and, um, and wanting to return back into the matrix, wanting to like hide from, from mature life as an adult. I think romanticism is deeply connected to all of that and trauma as well. Cause if you're traumatized, you often end up with a kind of neurological structure that leads towards this type of um, architecture within adult life, the desire to return to innocence before you got scrambled. And that shows up in your relationships. And it oft often is um, justified, you know, by a feeling of desire that just overtakes you. And yet you find yourself kind of going, sliding back, you know, it's uh, you climb up the ladder of maturity and then you end up back down the chute, um, back into this magical state uh, uh, that's rooted in childhood, rooted in this type of, I mean, she calls it like androgynous, right? Um, and this androgynous, um, uh, like incestuous kind of romantic bond that is a sign of, you know, the emergence of a decadent phase in culture. That has been really intense to, to sit on for the last few years. Um, so yeah, those are some people that I've, that, I've, that I've learned quite a bit from. Evolutionary psychology has been very successful in its ability to tell a story about how almost every element of our lives um, is related to the logic of reproduction of genes. In the last 50 years, we've introduced um, technologies that really allow people to have sex without any concern for reproduction and technologies mm -hmm. that basically allow us to reproduce organisms without sexuality. So that seems like a massive disruption of the entire thing that biology has been doing on this planet. How do we even begin to start appreciating what that might signify? It's so, talk about touching a different time. Jeez, like, I mean, yeah, with the pill, with other forms of contraception, and, and like the, the kind of decentralized ubiquitousness of it and, and reliable abortions as well. It's, it's not just preventative, but also being able to intervene after conception um, to shift the, basically to shift the asymmetry of cost, right? So literally the structure shifted, the structure of, of this whole sexual interplay, both both, you know, in the time of, of sex, but also through time, right? Because sex is obviously working through time. So we've messed with the future and we've messed with the kind of psychological, the negotiating structure of our imminent world, right? Um, I think this has had a lot of implications. I think. You know, I kind of go back, like I've, I've kind of been to different places with this. Like, I think that women do need to be like held in deciding for themselves what to do with their reproductive capacities. You know, I think if, if like we're too uncooperative, like men will figure out a way <laughs> um, to do it without us. So I think that, you know, there, the, the idea that like, that there's, that we could just like leave the other, I think is, 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 is a delusional position of negotiation. 
But I do think that it, it's, it is critical. Like, I think it is critical. There is a critical moment that we have in our history. It's not just contraception. It's also the fact that because technology extends the kind of inside outside of the body, because our labor has changed, men didn't want to do hard labor either. They didn't want to have to <laughs> break their backs. Um, and so they built incredible machines where you can push a button and the leverage that you have in this assemblages of gears metaphorically um, allows for things to move at such a like, grand scale. Like, wow, how incredible. You can extend your mind rather than having to use your body as the tool, the, the power that gives you um, the dominion, the power, the capacity to change things in the world. And I mean, that's, that's a huge part of this as well. And like, well, women can press buttons too, right? So suddenly like the, the landscape of, of um, what it takes, what it takes to be in control has changed as well. It, it's not about brute force, really. Like I said before, it's more about this kind of coercive form of soft power um, and strategic kind of thinking that, and asymmetries of information. We've kind of moved into the world of the psyche. The physics of the psyche is much more important than physics of um, like in, embodied reality, Newtonian reality. And so women can play those games as well. In fact, they're pretty sophisticated at it given our kind of receptive and relational capacities. So those things together, um, plus like the delaying, the, the, the technologies that exist that allow for women to choose to delay reproduction or to forego it and yet still have children. So there's also surrogacy and other forms of, of you know, ad adoption or, or things like that that allow for women to, to still kind of have children, even though they don't go through the embodied experience of pregnancy and birth. So we're really getting into, I think like what is the, the beginnings of like a proto-speciation event. Like there is, there's things about this that create hard forks. And there's kind of moral intuitions, aesthetic intuitions that people have that will prevent them from going certain ways, no matter how much money they have. You know, like I like pers personally, I don't think if I had Ed, like, I don't, I don't care how much money I had, I don't think I would ever do surrogacy. I, I just, it, just like aesthetically, I just can't. I, I just can't do it. <laughs> I can't, I can't, like for me, that's still a place where I'm in my like development where there's something about it that just sits in me the wrong way. And I, I have to kind of continue to contend with that as part of what's being in the world. And my intuitions about it are not necessarily the truth about what it means, but there is this kind of like, oh, that's not for me feeling. Like whatever path I'm on is not that path. And those are like a different kind of people who would consider to do something like that. Like my sense of being, especially my sense of being as a woman is about going into the body and unleashing the qualities of the body and wanting to participate fully in the life cycle of, of being a woman. And that includes, you know, the experience of pregnancy in it. That's not something to forego. I wouldn't give it up. Like I wouldn't give it up. I wouldn't give it up. Um, unless, unless, you know, God given God took it from me. Right. So I mean, and that's, where does, where does that intuition come from? I don't know. That's just like something that I have. And, and that would, that would be a fork, 
you know, there's going to be some men who are interested in that and aren't interested in a kind of person who would want to um, put pregnancy onto another person. Um, once a woman who's going to go through that full process of, of giving birth. So, and those are just little tweaks. Those are just tiny things, but that's the kind of thing that can create the generator of a culture. And over time you end up with these, I mean, I would even imagine a kind of religious structure, like a religious justification for these types of small intuitions that are pushing people from one side to the other terms of how reproduction, how the body is, is interfacing and being extended and changed um, due to technological innovation. So we're really at the beginning of this, and I think it's going to require a lot of bravery and also a lot of pluralistic thinking, as in not necessarily thinking that just because there's other people somewhere who are choosing something else, that they're naturally our enemy, like an enemy and really contending with these underlying moral intuitions, because maybe there's something about giving birth to your own child that's parochial. You know, maybe that's, maybe that'll be passe one day, or maybe we'll discover that there's, there's something um, imperceptible and un, unreplicatable, you know, about being in, in your own mother's body, or at least not being like, you know, uh, born in some sort of pseudo womb artificial womb that's outside of the body. We're moving into a, like an ethical landscape that is, um, I mean, I think in a, some sense, highly asymmetrical. It's almost as asymmetrical as death. You know, the decisions that you make before someone dies or in the face of death, right? Like the, the, the cost of the mistake is much higher than at any other point. <laughs> you know, if you're dealing with a person, right? You make a mistake with them. You can kind of talk about it later. Maybe you can recover. Maybe you can make up for them. But if you do something right before somebody dies, that's a mistake. There's really nothing you can do about that. That's just something you have to live with, right? So I think we're kind of in that environment where there's like asymmetries that exist in our decision-making that we're not even totally like, we can't even totally contend with. They're like hyper-objective states. Like the temporality and the spatiality of these things, they're much bigger than we are and we're kind of inside of them. And it, it, I think it requires this vigor. I think when we're talking about this, this suspicion and the bravery, suspicion of one's own intuitions and desires, but also the bravery to contend with the possibility that you might be right or wrong are necessary for this like liminality. Um, it's a huge, it's a huge thing. And um, what was the other thing you mentioned? There was, oh, decoupling. Oh my God. I'm sorry. <laughs> Reproduction. Well, I mean, I mean, what it does, it does something kind of intense and beautiful in some way, which is like, you know, as human beings, we tend to, we want to like open horizons, right? We want to be like, okay, let's like expand the, the, the possibility space of like diversification of specialization, right? And by decoupling sex and um, reproduction, we've effectively done that, right? So now you can have all of these like highly particular kind of um, like breeds. Like I, I almost think of it as a kind of, uh, you know how like brassicas like all kind of has the same it's just like same plant and you've got like cauliflower and you've got broccoli it's like humans are doing that um and and the internet is driving that it's driving a kind of domestication and an exaggeration of certain types of traits like a bodybuilder you know or or whatever uh an anime girl right at the expense of others but you know that's kind of that's part of the process of desire kind of like accentuating certain qualities of human existence at the expense of others diminishing those um, and creating a kind of like garden of human experience. And so we've done that. We've like, we've, we've totally unleashed, right? This like diversification horizon that can be filled up. But with that horizontal capacity, we also have many more 
kind of traps or like you as a person trying to surf this this environment it's like oh how do i want to exaggerate myself or how, do, how do i want to like be part of this like domestication of human experience the specialization of it way more places for you to fall into that aren't meant for you way more situations that um might actually harm your capacity to find the things that you want and i think that's why like you know Keegan's book in Over Our Heads, I think is very instructive for understanding the moment that we're in. And the case, and at a younger and younger age, people are being forced into a fourth order consciousness where they need to be able to self-author at the expense of, of, of really getting themselves stuck in things that um, could be detrimental to them, that their capacity to live in relationship to the clarity of self and desire that's going to motivate them to make good choices over the course of their lives. There's a lot more traps in the horizon being expanded, but that's what we like to do. So I, I, I imagine that there must be, you know, there's an upside somewhere um, to this. And regardless, it just is, it just is. And we have to contend with that. So it's more about empowering people to know what's good for them. One of the things I really liked about the interview you had with Ryan and Nate was this discussion around how aesthetics and erotics can uh, open our ability to explore, integrate with the other. Mm -hmm. right? In a very basic way, when you attune your attraction to someone, you don't just encounter a human being, you encounter a whole world. Uh, and likewise, Ryan's very focused on the possibility that we might be able to set up systems to encourage this between some of the political and sociological divides if people can be more attracted to and turned on by people with more disparate worlds we might be able to achieve some greater more accelerated degree of social integration what's the internal analogy of that how do how do systems within us get attracted to other systems within us how do they find how does the heart find the body find the mind What's the role of erotics and aesthetics? I mean, we can't really know, but what would you imagine about this similar relationship pattern inside us? Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, I think in a way that's where it starts, right? Like, um, some people are born with this. Uh, I, I would, I would consider myself among them. Like, you know, the thing that's like off limits you want to go to, and in a way that's been part of my, I think that's like part of me right like it was externalized in many ways in order for me to discover it but it was a kind of like psychic propensity um a morbid curiosity but just curiosity in general and i think that this this is something that's quite normal and common <laughs> to people uh is this curiosity you know being in the self is mm, you know it's a challenging thing i wonder you know i wonder about how much we really know what's going on with our internal world when we're young, when we're children. It seems like a lot of the process of coming to know what is on the inside is an internalization of, of personality, character, propensities, you know. So, I mean, as a child, I, I was definitely attracted to things that I wasn't supposed to do. And <laughs> um, I, I continue to be, right? And that, I think that that's part of why I've been able to get out of my upbringing um, and my kind of ideological, uh, you know, indoctrination 
that that I was raised in. Um, and even, oh my gosh, I mean, even, even the kind of position, the position of being a young woman, the position of being a young woman gives you a very strange intuition about the world and how it operates. <laughs> um, and like getting into a place where I was like, okay, actually I am like a specific place. Like I'm not the only young woman in the world, right? But, like, you know, there's a kind of specificity to this position. There might be citizens to it. And it's very easy, I think, that, that it has, you know, in this position to be entitled to it unconsciously you don't even realize that you are you don't even realize that you have some kind of um, position of, of power and influence over other people that uh that you might need some wisdom or integrity or um empathy or understanding in order to wield with intelligence and compassion and also sense in terms of protecting oneself from from being, you know, overcome by people who want to attain you, right? So I think that I also was able to transcend a kind of apathy um, towards men because I was just so curious. <laughs> I was just like, I got to understand this. Like I have, like I have to figure out what it's like to be on the other side. I just, I just have to do it. And it was just this like more, more, almost morbid kind of curiosity about the other. And I, I wonder how this relates to my interest in death. You know, from a young age, I was like very much buff. You know, I was like, ooh, death is ooh. Like, really hated, like, you know, even in college, you know, there was a lot of like hippies and they were all about life and like light. And I was like, mm, like, I want to go hang out with the goths, you know, the people who are dark and they're like damp and, and into decay and like disgust and like, you know, old fingernails and hair and like, taxidermy you know these things that kind of bring forth into our experience um the morbid right the decay the loss of oneself and then i think brushes with death you know i've had a couple um where uh, major deaths and in in that sense like i think you also can cultivate a curiosity about it it comes to you and you know it and you see it and, and it's in your life and you come not to fear it as much, right? Because it's there and you begin to understand its properties. So, you know, it's, it, if you see that in someone, I think you can really invite it into the picture. You can invite the morbid curiosity that we kind of naturally have to play, to play. And I think that could also be a framing thing. Like there's things that I've gotten into or, you know, like parts of the internet that, I mean, I was like really fascinated with like highly misogynistic, like internet subcultures for a while. Um, and I think, you know, part of it was about trying to, to empathize, like to get in, to gain an appreciation of it and to come to terms with that there was some kind of world out there where someone like me was being viewed in a certain kind of way. So, I think, yeah, inviting it in, in people who already seem to have that. And then I don't know about implanting it into people. I feel like that's the kind of thing where you, maybe it's just something that people should find, you know. I, yeah, I wonder if it can be engineered. This is the thing, you know, it's, it's once again, it's like, okay, you gotta figure out what level of abstract you're working on, you know? And I think unfortunately for like anybody who's interested in transformation, I mean, it's like, so much of the level that people are interested in getting people to transform 
on is like highly contextual, highly interpersonal. Like you literally need so many psychedelic guides, so many healers, so many caregivers, because you need this one-to-one -one relationship. Um, if you want to get to these higher levels of abstraction, where you're you're kind of in this broadcast mode, where you can like engineer some sort of like um, process that everyone can go through, I think that you're once again you're invoking the world of art. Um, you're invoking this scale of of being able to draw out these things in other people, but it, more of inviting them into a process rather than being like, I'm going to engineer this and it's going to create these outcomes. It's like over and over again, we, we, we seem to find that the way that we're attempting to engineer things is just not leading to the results that people seem to say that they want. Um, and I wonder if that's actually indicative of a mistake that we're making um, in terms of how we're approaching the, build, the creation of things, the building of things, rather than it being an instance where something has gone wrong, you know? Um, so, yeah. Well, I've been asking a lot of questions. What do you think we should talk about? Hmm. I guess I'm, I am interested, like I was talking, I was listening to an interview that you did with Karen, her last name, um, this something I don't know how to say, <laughs> but you were talking about uh, like the, the liminal web and like the absence of women or like, and the kind of, like whether or not you need parity, gender parity really to kind of achieve the benefits of, of neurological diversity in your groups. And I don't know. I found that, that I found that kind of question to be interesting. It's one of those. It's one of those questions, right? It's like kind of in the background, or you know, like a new woman comes to the stoa or something, and she's like, "There aren't enough women here," <laughs> you know, um, or like this, this. Like, there's this critique. It's like there aren't enough women here, or like whatever. Um, so, and and this, uh, but it is an interesting question. If you're if you're willing to kind of engage with wholeness of it and kind of give it. Give it, give it its space to kind of answer without being like, oh, it must be bad that there are women here. Or, or that, you know, there like, like there's a kind of begging the question sometimes that in that critique where it's trying to imply and even maybe threaten the group through its invocation, right? Because it's almost like an incantation at this point because of how, how utilized it is to kind of undermine the pre-existing coherence that's been brought to a group. So that's interesting to me. I don't know if you have anything that you've been chewing on about that. Naomi Most and I just had a conversation about this the other day, uh, and it is really uncertain, right? Because I think there is an objective dimension to it, which is um, you need a certain amount of diversity in order to have a more complex collective intelligence. And some of that is just formal diversity people with different experiences, different bodies, different backgrounds makes it a smarter group. But what counts as being in the group is really ambiguous, right? Is, is my girlfriend in the group when she's off camera? Well, yeah, because we talk and I come on camera, then I go off camera and we talk. <laughs> uh, but she's not on the stage. And there's something there's something unpleasant about excluding a type of person from the stage, right? You don't want to set up a situation where you're like, well, we're making sure we don't have women foregrounded on the stage. That would be perverse, but it's equally perverse to think that everybody has to be foregrounded on the stage or that everybody's type of participation is the foregrounded on stage type. 
Um, the question is, how do you get a healthy, constructive version of both of those things? Right? If, if you're getting that mix, how do you do it in a way that's maximally useful and minimally forced out of some kind of idealism you have about diversity and equality? And if you're doing it offstage, how do you make sure it's really happening and not just being marginalized or relegated to some other dimension of your life? I don't think we know that, but I think that framing at least puts us in front of the question. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Yes, I, I think what I've noticed is that women seem to be like kind of more involved in their lives in some way, like in a way that's like diversified, like there's a lot of different things going on. Like, you know, the, like a lot of the women that I know, you know, they have social events that they're going to, they're hosting things, they want to make food, they're like, they're reading, they're working on their career, like they're, they're like very much like kind of full in this way that's um gets them they're dabbling in lots of different arenas and so there's an issue with like the way there's like this kind of asymmetry right especially on the internet who shows up forms the community who shows up is often based on who's the most fixated who's the most committed who's the most specialized in this thing so like if you're somebody like peter Lindbergh, peter Lindbergh is like specialized in being you know the stoa guy and that's he's holding that space right and like it seems like a lot of the things um in this environment like the men are holding the spaces because they've given themselves to it they've they've dedicated themselves to it they're doing it instead of doing other things and they're kind of giving their all there they are like specializing in that and like even me like i i'm someone who's pretty willing to come up on stage and talk but i haven't been willing to hold the space i haven't been willing to give myself over to all of this and and hold the digital environment hold and hold a place for people to come to to specialize in this environment i haven't been willing to do that um and i think that like what that has to do with is my my i have a lot of relationships that i have to care for I have a lot of things going on in my embodied life, the thing that's going on off camera that needs to be attended to and feels in many ways and in many times much more important than, than holding this kind of space. And I know that there are other people out there who are doing it, you know, and, and so I don't have to. <laughs> um, and so I can come and I can play and I can be held and I can be invited. I can share the things that I have to share, but I can also go back and attend to the things that are are present and like embodied and nourishing me in this kind of complete way. And I I've noticed this pattern like over and over again that women it's not that they don't want to come or that they they, they just got lots of things to do. There's not a lot of demands on their attention. Yeah. There's a lot of interesting facets to that. You know, one of which is that it replicates some kind of classic glyph between masculine and feminine where you can sort of imagine you know the seated monk and the women dancing around right you go okay well there's something about the about the solidity and the and the folk simplicity and the space holding element that's classically young there's also this interesting question about where the line is between legitimately having more things to attend to in a lot of ways right <laughs> like where are all the integral women she's making dinner right now <laughs> yeah. Yeah, <laughs> but exactly. on the other hand 
we know some things about masculine feminine brain differentials where the masculine types to simplify <laughs> information and the feminine lets it be very pervasive and flow around and that leads to uh, a situation in which men pretend things are simpler than they are and women pretend there's too many things to take care of that i can't even figure out how to do anything i'm overwhelmed by all these directions so there's this you know uncertain area between where women are often legitimately more busy taking care of things that the men have let themselves off the hook from taking care of and where that's just how it feels to be inside the feminine brain all the time. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, to me, this is the mark of a sophisticated culture, the negotiation of these two things. That's what this is a sign of is that we have yet to kind of make ourselves a sophisticated cohesive culture <laughs> doesn't mean that we can't get there as a community but it, it just it's like a signal that like you know maybe it's not uh quite at the place we'd like to be and 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 of course i think the thing that you're bringing up is 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 super important because we are not even in an environment where we can even determine whether or not like we are in this kind of place of sophistication because we're not seeing what's happening behind the scenes um and that may be where women are choosing to be choosing to be not that they're being excluded but that's where they would prefer to be so it it does put us into an environment where if, we're, if we are too fixated on the appearances of things which and there are many people who are very fixated on the appearances of things you know this goes under the banner of representation kind of in our political ideological environment and it's it's not so much about the substance or about the invitation or about um, you know the, the the benefit of the doubt, the the good faith that you know women are being invited, people are being invited, and that maybe they're turning things down. You know, you just don't see what's going on um, in the background, and um, you know, I think it's a hard thing in general, just the way that the digital environment works. It's like the only way that you are seen on it is if you place something into it. That's the way you become legible to it. It's the only way. That's how it works. There is no pre like absence and presence. I mean, the only way to do that is through being a viewer, right? And some platforms are may made for viewers. Something like YouTube is made for viewers. You know, there's all these viewers who are watching your channel and all this stuff. And like, I'm sure, they're women, and then there are men who are talking to women about it who you can't even count because maybe the woman doesn't want to sit and watch a three-hour-long conversation, but she would love to talk to her partner about it. You know, because it has that living element to it. It's not just a representation of something that happened between two people who are alive. It's somebody who's processing the imprintation of something and reanimating it in the in the moment, right? And that, that actually gives more of an embodied context to the thing. And it, it gives weight because you love your partner and you want to you want to be connected to them. So it's it kind of fills it out and makes it this ho more holistic experience to be in that kind of relational environment um and an embodied environment so how do we navigate the digital when there's this imprint this i think of it as a homunculus it's like a homunculus of human activity that's super distorted and and privileging of who's just being online and and that does skew that you know there's the joke right there's no women online right like and i mean i think that there's you know of course there are women online but like the reason why that's said is that it's like this is an environment where like men in particular, the way that their brains function and the way that they socialize and like the way that they, the way that they like create these like, groups and these structures, like it really um, 
folds itself into the kind of homunculus of the digital that um, it, it's like very synergetic. And so like, what are we gonna do? Like, you know, yeah, we can like point our fingers at the structure, but you know, it's, it's, it's more of coming to terms with its nature and then being able to like have that negative space, like have that negative space around the liminal web and be like, okay, well, in terms of women or in terms of the feminine, we have to kind of like hold the void. Interesting. We have to hold the void um, of the feminine because we can't see it, right? Um, and be, be comfortable with the imprint of the thing without actually having to see the thing in itself, which in and of itself is like a feminine exercise, you know? So I have hope. I have a lot of hope for this space. I think that men are respectful of women. I think like I've had an incredible experience working with men in this, in, the, in this, like across the board, just incredible. Like, I, like I hear criticisms of sex. I'm like, I don't see that. I, I really don't see that. And especially when it's this kind of like issue of representation, I just don't, I don't think that's an argument or a criticism that really holds that much water on that level. The more the investigation into the properties of it and the curiosity about why it might be the case that this is the appearance of things is interesting and how we can integrate that feminine way of thinking and whether or not it even has a place online on stage like those are questions that i think um we should be sitting with we should be wondering about but yeah there's no like don't like we can't like let uh, an assumption come into the question right with this kind of thing especially when it's the feminine which means it's going to be tricky it's going to be in connection to the void so it may be itself a challenge to sit with the feminine or it to not be showing itself in such obvious ways yeah i think so i think one of the um i mean it can go both ways if you see a space like this where there's a, a huge preponderance of of white males and more than that white males of a certain kind of psychological type a certain interest set there are ways in which they need to be sitting with that question and opening up and part of what that is is also sitting with the question of is that okay right is it okay for for this to be like okay we're we're a type of person we're doing this that's fine we don't have to constantly bedevil ourselves with the question of where are all the other kinds of people who aren't doing what we're doing and then there is something about embracing the feminine that includes that kind of honoring yourself as a type with mm -hmm. a mysterious space around it but mm -hmm. there's also something here about I think the there may be a recalibration of the kinds of topics that are engaged that are because they're invitational in different ways. One of the things we do on the integral stage that's different than say you talk or Jim Rod or Joe Rogan or they we subdivide into these thematic subseries. So yeah. we're able to see the difference between them in a way that a lot of podcasts don't. Mm -hmm. And it's clear that the sexuality series has a very high amount of female representation. And some of the more theoretical series don't, even though maybe I talked to a Benita Roy or a Nora Bateson, it's clear that something about sexuality and relationship and embodiment is much more invitational to having women foregrounded than some of these other areas. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it skews. I, I mean, I think there's something else too about that is like, like it would be very interesting to me, like if you just, or, you know, the sake of, investigating trying to do like a family series mm. because i think you know i think women in particular who are like very comfortable with their sexuality like i think of it as being kind of in the archetype of like the maiden or even the prostitute that 
they're okay. They're, they're like totally comfortable being on stage. They're totally comfortable being in their femininity, in their sexual nature and exposing it to the world in a way that women who are maybe more on the like kind of like maternal caregiver side of things are much more like protective and modest. And so there's also this kind of like representation of, of women who are in, sec in the sexuality series. You're catching a bunch of women who've like developed themselves to the point where they don't hold their sexuality with any form of like shame. And not to even say that somebody who's more modest is, is, is dealing with something that's like shameful. It's, it's really not that. It's like there's a kind of propensity um, towards exposure that like is, is, it varies between women. And some women, it, you know, it's much safer for them to maybe have like a Twitter ex like, like experience, but like they don't want to like be seen, you know? And, and like, there's a lot of good reasons for that, especially if we're thinking it in terms of like these, the feminine being this like receptive force. Like if you're, if you're really, really attuned and receptive and empathetic and like you're caring for children and like you're doing all of these things, like, do you really want to have a bunch of strangers pulling on your attention? Do you really want to have those considerations? They're so far afield. They're so beyond what you what what you may want to be touched by. They may invite things that you're not interested in. And whereas I think women who are like you know they have they're interested in on the, in the stage like they're interested in exposing themselves. They're interested in like being seen. Um, there's often a connection between sexuality and women with those types of um, like propensities. And I think that that's why throughout history, you know, the prostitute was the first kind of woman who was put on stage, right? Like the, the prostitute is the first kind of woman who is in film, <laughs> you know, like the exposure of the woman, I think has really been linked to the women who have already decided that their sexuality is part of their exposure, their outside. Yes, yes, no, that's exactly it. That's exactly it. Um, and I think there's a lot of that lineage in, in, in culture, like a lot of women, I would say, who expose themselves to the world, there, there are like, you know, the strippers of whatever, um, you know, the political strippers or like, you know, the philosophical strippers or whatever it is, like they're, they're out there being political, out there being exposed and they're bringing themselves and like women in particular who brought themselves to sexuality there's a kind of like loop that's that's created it's like oh the thing that women are hiding in the first place i am exposing and therefore i don't have to be afraid or i don't have to protect myself like i've already given up the thing that other people are protecting which is this which is you know a sense of protection itself a sense of like specialness a sense of like secretiveness like there's a there's a, there's a power in secrets and there's a power of a secretive sexuality and if you've figured out a way or you've come into contact with an exposure of your secretive sexuality there isn't a turning back from that you have exposed it and you have shared it with other people and and once you've done that you're kind of liberated to do many other kinds of things continue to expose yourself in different kinds of ways, but it's it's a kind of threshold. And I think, I think understandably, many women choose not to cross it. Many women, I mean, of course, <laughs> like it's a choice. It's an aesthetic choice. It's a personality choice. And you have to have a good enough reason to do it because something does have to die. Something about you does have to be transformed and transmuted to move from being in secret to being exposed. And you have to have 
the interest in doing that in the first place. And so, um, yeah, you know, it's like, I like that idea of like philosophical strippers. <laughs> I think that's beautiful. Well, you and I could, and at some point probably should continue this conversation indefinitely, but we should probably wind it down for today. Yeah. Um, I guess my last question, if it's not too personal, mm -hmm. what do you admire about your grandmother? Mm. My grandmother was, you know, she was born in an interesting time. She's born during the depression. Um, and she was a very driven woman, very driven, very interested in getting the things that she wanted. And her, I think my sense of it, admiration around her is kind of about the essence of her drive. She was very rooted in what she wanted and uncompromising about it. And that made her a difficult person to be around <laughs> at times. Um, and I think that I have inherited that. I have inherited that. Like I'm I'm in the lineage, like my mother inherited that from her. You know, I you know, received that from my mother. Um, so it's an outward woman, you know, a woman who is who is interested in the political, is interested in engaging with men. Like my, my grandmother, she built that outside, right? You know, she she was she had the shield, she had the spear, and she was contending she was contending with the, the with the masculine in a way that created a wake you know that i i don't have to be that way which i'm grateful for because there it came at a cost but i also have that essence that core and i can also see from her how how it also um like yeah like the failure modes right the, the traps that she fell into because of that ruthless kind of specialization in in that um in that way and also being able to see like the the work that women before me did um to assert themselves into these the manor buns you know of of of, of civilization these old boys clubs really real thing you know very very real it was very hostile for women, both because there were these tight, you know, in-group dynamics that tried to keep women out, like kind of an allergy, but also because like the, the nature of masculine um, conflict. Uh, Karen said this thing in your interview that I thought was beautiful. Men, men can be brutal, women can be poisonous. So women often feel uncomfortable in like male brutality space and men often feel uncomfortable in women with the women's poisonous spaces, right? So having to like enter into that endogenous dynamic, um, I think is a major transition that like I have more of choice, I have a choice about. Like I can be that way, but I can also decide to be more specialized into the feminine. So there's admiration for her being like the spear or something, and also a sense of gratitude that that's not, that's not my fight, you know? that I can learn from that like kind of lineage and choose to do something else.